All right, we come to our study of God's Word, so Luke 13, I hope you're already there in your Bibles. We are in this great chapter, and uh, so, so exciting and riveting what God is doing in our hearts through the study of the life of the Lord Jesus on His way to His death for sinners. And if you notice, when, when you study the life of Jesus, He doesn't really evangelize in the way that people tend to expect him to evangelize, and he doesn't, he doesn't evangelize in the way the church tends to gravitate in its evangelism through the years. You know, we um, continually have to guard against this drift into the idea that somebody can get into the kingdom very, very easily with little to no demand on them morally at any level. This is the gravitation of the church, the struggle of the church. We have to guard against that. In Jesus' evangelism, he he just went at it in ways that we don't tend to, that we tend to drift differently in. He just went straight at it. He spoke it lovingly, but nonetheless, minced no words when it came to what people needed to do to get into heaven. We're uh, constantly battling the other problem. We tell people that it's really easy to become a Christian. Just, just pray these words and you're in. You sign your name on the back of something that you prayed them and you're in. Or we tell people, hey, you don't have to walk away from worldly things that you love. Just accept, just accept that Jesus wants you as you are and he takes all of that uh, with you. If you don't want to give those things up, don't worry about it. You're in. It's like years ago, the non-lordship movement, uh, about 20-some years ago or more, basically said, you don't even have to repent to come to Christ. You just change your mind about the information that you hear about him, and you're in. That was repentance. Repentance didn't require that you actually walk away from self-exaltation and your old life and renounce sin. It didn't didn't involve that at all. Repentance was merely a change of uh, your mind, or so you verbalized it as a change of mind. It's similar today. You have people saying, hey, Jesus has done everything for you, and so even if there's no evidence in your life that you actually obey him because you love him, that's all right, you're in anyway, doesn't matter. Or how about other ways that we tend to imagine it's easier to get in? Hey, just be baptized and you're in, some religions say. Or just believe in whatever your higher power is and that will be God to you and so you're in. Or, hey, you can live your moral beliefs any way that you feel is right for you. So if you walk away from your marriage, you have no reason to doubt the assurance of your salvation at any level. If you want to be a homosexual, you can still belong to Jesus and live that way morally. You're in. You can be a Buddhist and add Jesus to that. You can be a Muslim and add Jesus to that. You can worship the earth and add Jesus to that, and you're in. He doesn't make an issue of any of those things, so the church tends to, tends to imply. But Jesus doesn't evangelize like that, and really it doesn't matter what question Jesus was asked, he, he always was trying to correct that problem and guard the gospel, the good news, and help people understand with clarity what their need was. That was his approach to evangelism. We find that same thing here in Luke 13. You remember he had just talked about the kingdom 
in these two growth parables in verses 18 to 21 of Luke 13, and he basically said the kingdom has prevailing power no matter if you see it starting small. You may see it start small, but it has a prevailing power, and you may not see its effects working, but it is influential, as influential as a little bit of leaven, which can just completely permeate uh, the lump of dough. He gave that little parable about a woman who puts the leaven in, and it just permeates this massive amount of supply and provision. And so then, as, as Jesus is speaking to the crowds, Luke records a moment here where somebody from the crowd asks a question, and it's, we're going to find out, it's, it's a rather misguided question, if not a smug question. Notice verse 22, he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. We've seen that over and over again, he's on his way. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? That is a very interesting question. And it shouldn't surprise us if you've sort of followed the flow of Jesus' message as he has made his way to Jerusalem. You can, you can see why people became sort of smug about it, particularly the Jews, or misguided about it in the crowd. You say, how so? Well, you remember, Jesus had dealt with the need for spiritual readiness back in chapter 12, verses 35 and following. In other words, if the master comes back and you're not found ready and waiting for him, then you're not in. It was almost like everything Jesus said was an attempt to sort of help you understand whether you were in or not, and there were a whole bunch of people that seemed to be outside because they're not ready. Then in chapter 12, he also dealt with how the gospel separates loved ones, and he mentioned that family members are going to separate out, in-laws and daughters and fathers and, and sons. So again, more people seem to be on the outside of this thing. Then he dealt in chapters, the end of chapter 12 through chapter 13 in the beginning, the hypocrisy that is there, particularly among the religious. And so they're not in. Then he warned that we should not wait because you might die unexpectedly. You remember he mentioned the Tower of Siloam and, and then the Gentiles that were slaughtered when, when Pilate mixed the blood of the sacrifices with Gentile blood. You remember that. Again, more people, he says, look, if you get un, unexpectedly um, killed in this life and you've not prepared your heart, you're also out. You're not in. You're going to likewise perish. Chapter 13, verses 3 and 5. And then he said, as we saw last time, that the kingdom can be compared to something that might have small beginnings and seemingly little influence, but eventually it manifests global power and global provision and global permeation, even though you might think otherwise because you just have assessed it and said, oh, it's kind of small, it's kind of ragtag, it doesn't really, it doesn't really seem to be the big manifest promised kingdom that Jesus talks about. And now Luke records that wherever Jesus went, he was proclaiming a warning about not missing the opportunity to repent. And that's what you have here in this section. And so you can imagine if people were going to have problems with the message Jesus was proclaiming, it was because of the narrowness of the message. That's what didn't sit well with people. Everywhere he preached, he, he seemed exclusive, he seemed to exclude people and pull a certain group in. He wasn't inclusive and wide mercy and open the door and it's easy to get in. He was never like that in his evangelism. 
His deeds were kind. They were irresistible, frankly. Everywhere he preached, people saw his kindness. People saw his compassion for the afflicted. His gracious healing of disease, almost banishing it literally from Palestine, some would estimate, and his healing of all the people afflicted and tormented by demons, his deeds were just simply too loving and attractive to dislike. But as soon as he opened his mouth and began to preach about the good news, Israel and the masses knew instantly what they didn't like about him. Because he was saying, you better be ready when the Son of God arrives instead of living for yourself or you're not in. Follow me, even if it separates you from friends and loved ones, or you're not in. Don't claim to know God if you refuse to put all your trust in me. You're not in. Repent now before it's too late and some unforeseen calamity comes upon you and you're not going to be in. And don't be fooled, he says, by Christianity's small beginnings or the rampant unbelief that seems to just shove Christianity to the corners of the globe. Don't be fooled by the appearance of powerlessness. You're not in if you mistake that message. To many in the crowds, it just seemed like the kingdom Jesus talks about is nothing glorious, nothing powerful. It's really rather insignificant perhaps even occupied by a fairly small amount of people. I mean, this is a narrow message calling people to walk a narrow path that seems to be excluding people all the time. And after all, his own nation, his own people rejected him. They said, you're not the Messiah. And did he try to open the door to them? Oh, come on, guys. Come on. No. He continued to poke them in the eye saying, hey, you don't get a free pass because you're God's covenant people. You must come to me the same way or you're not in. And then he keeps saying something that really upset Israel, that the Gentile peoples are going to come into the kingdom in massive numbers. Notice verse 29 and they will come from east and west and from north and south, and they'll recline at the table in the kingdom of God. He's talking about Gentile peoples. And Israel, he says, many in Israel are going to be left out. Well, I mean, the Jews were convinced to the very opposite. The Jews believed that they were in automatically, and the Gentiles were unacceptable and defiled and would not be allowed in. In fact, every Jew believed that they would get into the kingdom automatically simply because they were Jewish. And at this particular time in Israel's history, they ignored the outright, they outright denied Old Testament passages about the kingdom being open to Gentiles. They just ignored them or outright denied them. No, Gentiles aren't in. Only the Jews are in. Listen to the Mishnah. All Israelites have a share in the world to come, for it is written, thy people also shall be all righteous, they shall inherit the land. They took that to mean every single Jew, no matter what he believes, no matter how he lives, they're all in. It's all inclusive because you're Jewish. And then the Mishnah said, these are they that have no share in the world to come. He that says the law is not from heaven, that would be a Gentile who says he doesn't believe in the law, and and Epicureans, they, they aren't in either. Epicureans just was a, was a derogatory term for Gentiles in general, people who have no spirit in them. And so you can see it. If Jesus keeps insisting on such a narrow message that even his own people Israel reject him, well, then this kingdom, it's not going to captivate the imagination of the entire world. And frankly, not too many people will be interested in entering this kingdom Jesus speaks about since... 
by all appearances, the cost to their personal independence, as well as having to swallow their pride, is just too much to ask. This narrow message that excludes everybody, we, we want something far more broad. And so you note why the question comes. Someone in the crowd says, well, Lord, it's just a respectful term. Well, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved to your kingdom, basically? So as Jesus is teaching from one city and village to another, someone in the villages asked a question about the, the apparent minimal influence of the kingdom so far and the, the fact that Jesus keeps making the entrance more and more and more difficult. Why is Jesus doing this? We, we do the very opposite. We try to make it more and more easy, more and more simplified or simplistic rather, more and more um, nonspecific about what the Bible says and just in general, hey, just love Jesus and you're in. This question, by the way, is misguided, as I said, and probably to some degree smug because the person asking it seems to have done his own ministry math and the numbers just aren't adding up. So he's making a presumption about all of this. How do we know that these are possible motives for this person? Because of the way Jesus answers it. Jesus doesn't debate the issue of numbers. He doesn't go into a lengthy Old Testament treatise on the kingdom. Instead, he, he just delivers a flat-out command to this person and to the crowd to set aside their blinding pride and to see their spiritual situation from a whole different perspective. And he also gives them a strong warning in what I would consider the most terrifying terms in the Bible. The most terrifying moment in the Bible, Jesus talks about that moment in this passage as he had talked about before. So let's see what Jesus does with this. The, the question comes, and we'll just call it uh, a question that's missing the, the point. We'll just call it, it, it's a smug question, to which Jesus gives a surprising command. A surprising command. Look at verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now stop right there. This is surprising. This is a shock. Strive to enter. Right off the bat, this is a striking way to answer the question. Instead of quibbling about numbers and size and scope, Jesus gives a command. And again, Jesus doesn't often evangelize. He doesn't evangelize in the way the church rather so often does as we try to schmooze and ooze people into the kingdom. Jesus doesn't do that at all. This command makes Christians very uncomfortable. You say, why? Because the verb is very specific. Agonizingly struggle. That is the verb here, agonizingly struggle. It's often used of athletes who, in agony and struggle, compete to win the prize. And in fact, make no mistake, the force of this verb has the idea of constantly struggling until you've made it. You say, well, that's strange. Why does Jesus say such a thing? Isn't it God who saves? Yes. Isn't it God who provides the grace that saves the believer? Yes. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very clear about that. Isn't it God who says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Yes, that's true. Romans clearly teaches that. And you say, well, I thought that's all that's needed. All I need to do is pray some prayer that goes something like this. Jesus, I know you died on the cross to pay the price for sinners, and I believe you did that, and I want you to be my Savior. 
Isn't that what I must do? And since salvation cannot happen by human works of any kind, why does Jesus command the crowd to agonize and strive to enter the kingdom? That is the question here. That is why this answer is so surprising, because it's a command to struggle. Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus can't be calling human beings to save themselves. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness is as what? It's filthy, filthy garments. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Galatians 2, 16, there will be no works that can save you, no works of the flesh that can justify you and make you acceptable before God. We know that he can't be commanding sinners to muster up the grace enough in themselves to seek after God. So what is Jesus saying? Well, notice the shocking reasons Jesus gives for why entrance to the kingdom is so urgent and why it demands such a struggle. So from the smug question to the surprising command, you now come to some pretty shocking reasons. Pretty shocking reasons why the command is given. Reason number one, the door is narrow. The door is narrow. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Again, this has been said before by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, enter by the narrow gate, when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus could have described the entrance to salvation and to the kingdom and to heaven as wide. He could have described it as freely open for you and all your stuff and all your beliefs and all your demigods and all your idolatries, just come as you are. He could have said, hey, it's freely open to you if you bring all your stuff and, and, and I'll accept you. But Jesus says the doorway to the kingdom is narrow. It is open. I love that. It is open, at least right now. But it is tough to get through because it is narrow. Now, the crowds knew what Jesus meant because, as I said, he had given this command several times in his ministry before this occasion, and he explained in those occasions what he meant. And so I want to just go to a few of those places. Look then back at Matthew 7 for a moment. It's very clear what Jesus is saying here about the narrow way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, in the Sermon on the Mount, he launches with the same command, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. So you have a contrast. One is wide, one is narrow. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. So he gives the imagery of someone seeking and struggling and, and not too many are willing to go through that. The other way is wide. The other way, many go on that road. See, so what does all that mean? Notice verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Ah, okay, interesting. There's some fruit that indicates what's really going on in the heart between those who are outside the kingdom and those who've entered through the narrow gate. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree good fruit. 
And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now he's going to explain what that looks like. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, enter through the narrow gate. Not everyone who says to me or calls me Lord or uses religious sentiment or claims to know Jesus will enter. But notice, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Ah, okay, now we're narrowing the definition. Someone who has the power to do the will of God, someone who wants to do the will of God, someone who has a heart to do the will of God. Some change has taken place in the person who enters through the narrow gate. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? Some sort of magical stuff is going on, some sort of demonic activities going on. And he says, I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Oh, okay. So someone who has a heart to do the will of God gets in. Someone whose lifestyle is against the things of God does not get in. So now you're starting to see why the way is narrow. It must be that you come to Christ with a disposition, both a heart disposition that manifests itself in fruit. That's how we know your heart is good, when there is good fruit. That's how we know you want the will of God. You want to honor Christ. You want to follow him. Your desires manifest themselves in fruitfulness. On the other hand, those who are outside, the many that will not enter, they practice as a lifestyle the things that are against God and against Christ. They don't want to do it, whatever they may say. Lord, Lord, it doesn't matter. He says, I don't know you. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a man who built his house on the rock. He's a wise man. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew. This is the judgment. And slammed against the house, it didn't fall, it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man, builds his house on the sand. Notice, one man digs down to find the rock and attaches his house to it. There's the struggle. There's the striving to know God, to know what you need, to know what's required. And then you have the man who doesn't dig down, doesn't care. He just puts his foundation on any ground, anywhere, whatever's easiest for him. That's the foolish man, because when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house, it falls, and great was its fall. What is happening here? Someone who has a heart to obey Christ, to love Christ, to honor Christ, begins to manifest that in the power of the Spirit of God in their life, where they are honoring Christ. Someone who doesn't want Christ but just names his name has no desire for him. It's all pretense. It's just externals. And eventually, their lifestyle manifests itself as one that practices lawlessness. Now, there is a word in Scripture that defines what happened in that change. And if you go back to chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, you see what happens. What is the definition of this change? What is required then? What do I need to strive in this narrow path to find? How do you get through the narrow door? Notice Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. You remember John the Baptist's ministry, what he was preaching. Verse 7, 
And so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God's able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so that every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen, Jesus had already said that. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Very familiar language from John the Baptist's ministry. What does he mean? Well, the crowds were questioning in verse 10. Well, then what do we do? He would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. Stop being selfish. Bear fruit of true repentance. Live like Christ. Verse 12, some tax collectors who came to be baptized, they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered. Be honest. Have integrity. Be like Christ. A humble heart that doesn't cheat people, that loves people, that sacrifices. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, what about us? What shall we do? And he said, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. Have a heart that is full of humility and honest living. Why? Because that is what John the Baptist said is true repentance. True repentance. Now, go to chapter 14 of Luke's gospel. Just continuing to build this idea of what it means to get to the narrow door and go through it. Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and he does not, by, co by a comparison of his love for me, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. There it is. You must have a love for Christ you must come to Christ and say, I want you. I want you as my Lord. I want my love and allegiance for you to be so high and so ultimate that every other relationship, by comparison, looks like it's opposite. I repent of my own trust. I repent of my own self-worship. I repent of my sin and love for myself. And I follow you. And I deny my own life. Verse 27, whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? What does he mean by that? Look, think about the cost. When you come to Christ, you are turning from self. You are turning from everything. This is what Jesus meant when he said, strive to enter the narrow gate. Don't be casual about what it means to be saved. Don't imagine the gate is wide and everything's easy. Don't do that. It's a narrow gate. It requires repentance from yourself. That's what is demanded. You don't get in if you don't repent of yourself. You don't get in if you don't deny yourself and follow Christ whatever he wants from you. You don't get in. This isn't about working your way to heaven. This is merely about repentance and faith. The heart that says, I'm no longer the center of my universe. Christ is everything. His payment for my sin, his forgiveness, his righteousness to cover me. I bring nothing. I am nothing. He is everything. We make much of Christ. That is what this is about. That is the narrow gate. It requires that you leave it all behind. You get rid of any self-trust. You calculate the cost. Verse 29, otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish 
Everybody observes it, begins to ridicule. Yeah, it's, it's a mockery to imagine that you can be in the kingdom by building your own edifice. Without calculating the cost, the whole thing will crumble. So back to Luke 13, when Jesus says, strive to enter, struggle to enter, he's saying it requires true repentance. It requires that you consider your condition carefully. Don't be indifferent. Don't be careless. Don't be casual. Struggle to know your true condition. Pray that God would open your eyes. If you don't know Christ, you're sitting here surrounded by those who know the truth, and you never press in to really know what God wants you to know about your need? Really? You never press into that? You just say, oh, it's as easy as just, you know, picking up their language. It's as easy as singing their songs. It, it's as easy as sitting here and saying, I have time. Look, you're living in a false security, Jesus says. You're the very ones whom Jesus gives this command to. Keep agonizing, keep striving to know that there's fruit of genuine repentance, to know that you need Christ and Christ alone. You say, well, God answer my prayers if I pray that? Listen, here's the, here's the beauty of this, okay? Here it is. The Word of God, Scripture, written by the Spirit of Christ, written by Christ through His Spirit, this living and abiding truth offers what it demands. Isn't that incredible? This offers what it demands. Christ says, keep striving. Here's how you strive. You go read his truth, and it offers what it demands. It gives what it requires. It will pour grace on the humble, teachable heart and bring you to the place where you can strive in that command and know that you've entered the narrow door. It gives what it demands. I love that. I, I don't have to struggle and strive to work my way to heaven. That's impossible. But if I come to the truth and I, I say, Lord, teach me my condition. Teach me to know where I'm at. Teach me what repentance is and what it looks like and the fruit of it. It offers it. It gives the power to see it and to have it and to walk through that narrow door. On the other hand, if you're just casual about it, if you're just sort of walking along, or, or worse, the church by its weak evangelism, has basically convinced you that it's simple, it's easy. There's no struggle at all. You don't have to consider what, that, whether you worship yourself. You don't have to consider whether you have other allegiances other than Christ. You don't have to consider what you really love. You don't have to consider that at all. You don't have to give up anything. You just come and, and you just add Jesus to your room full of idols. If the church has taught you that, no wonder you need desperately to struggle to enter the door is narrow. That's the first shocking reason Jesus gave this command. Notice the second shocking reason is the second half of that verse. The proud are excluded. Proud are excluded. This is amazing. Verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Notice that Jesus refers to many who will seek to enter. But what is clear is that these are the ones who do not strive to enter. They don't struggle to know their condition and see what repentance is all about, but they still seek to enter by some other way. They're still seeking, even to the very end, to find a different entrance, a less narrow door, a way to bring in all their stuff. These are people who haven't repented 
They haven't believed in Christ, and they want to enter the kingdom some other way. I don't want to have to repent. I don't want to have to admit my need. I don't want to have to run from the world uh, by the power of the Spirit. I don't, I don't want that kind of life. I actually love the world. I actually like to add Jesus to the world. I'd rather have comfort with the world. I'd rather have a life that's much easier with the world. In fact, this life seems pretty okay if I'm a fairly moral person. It's not bad. It's not bad. I mean, there's some trouble in trial, but, you know, we're getting along. It's not bad. To consider a more difficult life that, that Jesus commands me to live because he takes ownership of my life when I repent and believe in him, I, I, I don't really like that. I like the easier way. Jesus says they're going to try to seek, but they're seeking a more casual approach. They're waiting around to see if, the, if Christians are right. You ever known people like that? Oh, you know, I'll, I'll see, maybe. I, I'm not, I'll have an opportunity to seek Jesus at some point, if, it, if it's true. But I, I haven't seen enough signs. I haven't been convinced enough. And so they live for the world until the last minute, and they think that some kind of arrangement can be made with their maker. You've heard that kind of language. These are people who want to get in some other way. Too proud to repent. It's faith plus works, isn't it, pastor? I can get in with some of my works, can I, if I believe a little bit? I can make a last-minute deal with God. I've heard that many times. I, I can have some fire insurance, can I? If I pray this prayer, I walk the aisle, I go forward. I can have some fire insurance through some rituals and some prayers and some religious activity, can I? Or, you know what? My whole family has been involved in the church all their life. And so I have my ticket because I'm a part of church-going generations. They're too proud to repent, you see, but the proud are excluded. Jesus says they're not able to get in. Wow. Why? Because they're not entering through the narrow door. They'll seek to enter the kingdom, but not through the narrow door. Notice the one struggles and strives. Lord, help me see my condition. Lord, help me know what true repentance is. Lord, help me to know what it means to follow you and to love you and to honor you. Help me to know what it means to tap into the power of the Spirit by faith and repentance and really be a citizen of the kingdom. The other group, oh yeah, I want the kingdom, but not, not through that narrow entrance. So the door is narrow. The proud are excluded. Even more shocking is the third reason Jesus gives. The opportunity is limited. It's time-stamped. Notice verse 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. And then he will answer and say, I do not know where you are from. And beloved, this is unreal. Most terrifying words in all the Bible. The opportunity is limited. It's time stamped. Grace toward sinners will end. That's what we first notice here. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, are you kidding me? We constantly keep trying to make a different door, a wider door, a, a happier door, an easier door. And Jesus keeps saying, no, this thing is time-stamped. Grace towards sinners and the opportunity is limited. You must think this through carefully and strive and struggle and pray and ask God to show you the way. Man, the church just doesn't preach like this anymore. Man, we're, 
We're knocking open all kinds of false doors and saying, ah, you can come in that way. Yeah, you can scoot in that way. You can come over this way. You can do do this other way. Jesus said in, in his sermons, and particularly John chapter 10, I am the door. And somebody tries to climb up another way, and of course, he was referring to Israel, who had all kinds of people saying, come, come our way. Come through the theological and law-keeping righteousness of the Pharisees. He said, man, you try to climb up another way, you're done. That's, that's just, those people are hirelings. They don't care about the sheep. They don't care for, they're not shepherds of the sheep. They're, they've climbed up some other way. They're, they're wolves, he says. I'm the shepherd. I'm the door. You come in and out, and you'll have pasture, he said. But grace towards sinners will end. Do you ever, did you ever think of it like that? Do you ever think that salvation, grace, would would end, it would stop being offered to sinners. That's what Jesus says here. And notice that sinners will become desperate and arrogant. He says, you're going to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. And he's going to answer and say, I don't know where you're from. And then they're going to begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. And here's that familiar language, perhaps even from the psalmist, Depart from me, all you evil doers. You do evil. You practice evil. It's your lifestyle. It's your heart. You don't care about the truth. You wanted to come through some other way. I mean, they're saying, Lord, open up to us. Why should he? You haven't wanted his entrance. Lord, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. That's right. He did dine with them, and he gave them a Savior. He offered them himself as their Savior. He did teach in the villages, out in the open, calling everyone to come. He was gracious. The time was gracious. He didn't hold back. He didn't hold back from giving the good news to anyone who would listen. Man, there were Pharisees that were saved. And even on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews, many of whom cried for his death, were saved. He hasn't closed the door yet. His judgment hasn't finally fallen yet. He's gracious. But you know what? The door towards sinners of grace is going to close in the judgment. And sometimes, even in this life until then, God closes people off. You're stubborn. You're done. The Bible says that. Romans 1 says he gives some of them over. Hebrews 6 says he gives some people over, and it's impossible for them to repent. Why? Because they have stubbornly rejected the light at such a level. I mean, they're like Judas. Missed opportunity, missed opportunity, missed opportunity. Man, they hear it over and over again, and God just says, nope, that's it. I mean, it is shocking here. It's unreal. Grace towards sinners will end, and sinners will become desperate and arrogant, but they will not get any response except the most frightening words that are written in Scripture. I do not know you. I do not know you. It's like John 1, 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Yes, Christ spilled his light all over the globe. And it is still spilling out all over the globe through the gospel. And now you want to say, oh, open up to us. That's presumption. That is foolish. That's desperate arrogance. Because you hate Christ till the bitter end because he calls you to humble yourself and repent of your self-worship and follow him as Lord and Savior of your soul. And then even after living life as you want to live it, totally for your own self-exaltation, 
And then you want the grace of Christ to allow for you to sneak in at the last minute without repentance, without following Christ alone as your Savior. You want to come some other way? That is not going to happen. There is no other way. The opportunity is open right now. It's very clear what is required. It's the best news in this cursed universe. But God's grace towards sinners will end. So the door is narrow, beloved. The proud are excluded. The opportunity is limited. And lastly, here's a fourth shocking reason. That day will be terrifying. Notice, I'm going to tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they're going to come from the east and west, north and south, and will recline at the kingdom, the table of the kingdom of God. Some who are last are going to be first, and some who are first are going to be last. What is happening here? He is saying that that day is going to be terrifying for some people because on that day, you're going to be personally rejected by Jesus. I never knew you. Think about that. The Lord of the universe, the Lord of all lords, the Lord of glory himself to which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all demonic forces, Satan himself, everyone will bow to him and he will personally reject those who say, I don't care, I want to come some other way. Personally rejected by Jesus. And you're permanently indicted as rebels. In that place, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because you were evildoers. That's what he says. You who practice lawlessness, you who evildoers, you're, you're permanently indicted for all eternity as one who heard the truth and just rejected it outright. You didn't want it. What a shock that will be to know that he is the Lord and you, you thought you were the Lord of your eternity. And what is verse 28 saying? Look, you're going to have piercing clarity in your conscience on that day. If you reject Christ, and this, by the way, beloved, for those of you who are in Christ, this ought to be our evangelism. You're going to have piercing clarity on that day if you're a Christ rejecter because you're going to see that the patriarchs were right. Abraham was right. Isaac was right. Jacob was right. All the prophets in the kingdom of God that came to Israel, they were right. And all the nations of Jews who rejected what the prophets said, they were wrong. And you're going to see it on that day that all of them are there and you yourselves are thrown out. Even Gentile nations who never had the law of God. Listen, you could just translate that uh, by analogy to how many people belong to the evangelical church in this country hearing the truth from fellow Christians, from a, a praying grandmother or grandfather who've heard the gospel from faithful pulpits, and they sit there again and again and again. You know what? You're going to see them in the kingdom. Gentile nations, people saved you never thought would be saved, and they loved Christ. They repented. There was true fruit. And you, who heard it over and over again, but you were all about yourself, all about your own worship, all about waiting for some arrangement with God, you're going to be there and suddenly it's going to hit your conscience with piercing clarity that you heard the truth and from pride decided that you were your own God. And you're going to see them all there and you're thrown out and that's it. And you're going to know that you thought you were first 
but you are last. You're done. It's over. Man, when Jesus evangelizes, he's not trying to exclude people from grace. He's trying to tell you to come while there is grace. Because he knows what's coming. Our God is a saving God. And it is, it is nonsense for an unbeliever to say, I will live for myself, and on that day, I will find another way. Or I will pound on the door until you open to me. And Jesus is going to say to that person, I reject you because I don't know you. You're indicted as an evildoer for eternity, and I want it on your conscience with piercing clarity that I gave you the truth over and over again. You saw my creation over and over again. You could have pled for humility over and over again. Your sinful consequences should have led you to see your need over and over again. People all across the globe where you existed were, were giving the light, at least from creation itself. If you had responded to the light of creation, I would have sent you someone, but you never wanted to respond to any of that. You loved yourself. You loved your gods. You loved your false way. Now you want to demand that I open the door? No, because you want to come some other way. He said this to the Jews, John 5. He said, you know, you read Moses and you think that if you obey the law, you get in on your own righteousness. He said, on that day, Moses is going to come against you. He's going to be a prosecuting attorney. And he's going to say, if you didn't believe my words, you're not going to, you're not going to believe some other, some other person's words. You had it. You had all the truth. Even in the story of rich man and, the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said, look, even if somebody comes back from the dead and tells them the gospel, if they didn't believe my words, they're not going to believe some miracle of resurrection because in their heart, they don't want to enter by the narrowness of the door. Confess your pride. Confess your self-worship. Christ is the only way. He is Lord. Love him. Believe in him and his righteousness alone, and you shall be saved. You don't do that. There is no deal-making in the end. I dare say that Jesus doesn't really typically evangelize like evangelicalism, does he? He's not trying to close the door on grace now. He's trying to say, if you don't respond, it will close one day. If it closes on you, you'll be without excuse. Beloved, we should not try to soften this thing. We should lovingly say, yes, he's saving. Come to him. Amen? Bow with me.